This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is out wherever books are sold, so get a copy. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior vice to Wisdom Tree, and our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We have a really interesting show. We'll be talking with Vincent Reinhardt, uh, who is a strategist at BNY Mellon. Uh, he's spent a lot of time at the Fed, so we'll talk about his views on the Fed, inflation, all these key issues. But Professor, we're in the heart of earnings season. We're starting to get reports. How are you feeling about the markets, the economy? Give us your take. Yeah, let me let me first talk about the economy. I mean, the biggest surprise actually was this morning's uh, S&P um, a view of the uh, PMIs, as you know, it comes out before the ISM by by about a week. Uh, they jumped uh, above 50 uh, for the first time in a number of months. That, and that is for April. So we're getting post-SVB data. Uh, now, that followed what I thought was weaker data earlier this week. I mean, despite a big jump that we had the week before in the Empire Index, of the Philly Index is way, way down Jobless claims were higher than expected. So I thought we would see weakness, but this, um, the, I mean, this caused about a six or seven point BIP jump in uh, those 10-year yields. Um, and this uh, this announcement usually is not that significant, but um, definitely surprised at the upside. Um, uh, now, you know, the the whole question does, uh, you know, that that. This this gives, uh, of course, you know, unless something really bad happens, that the Fed is going another 25. The 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 whole question will be: Is it one and done, and uh, will they actually put explicit language of a pause in after that? Um, I I think that they will at this point, but uh, you know, we still have 10 days of data uh, left left to go. Um, next week we get, uh, a, another case shower report on housing, um, and another money supply uh, data. Now those are lag, but they're probably going to show some further drops, uh, in these important indicators and they are lag. Uh, we will, uh, of course also see, um, uh, GDP for the first quarter looking at, uh, approximately 2%. That still means the fed has a uh, projected negative slightly negative GDP for quarters two, three, and four. We talked about that before. We don't know whether they knew that they were actually projecting that with the March data, but uh, that still will come out. So we'll take a look at that uh, first quarter GDP, definitely going to be positive. Um, it's too early to say clearly what uh, what this uh, quarter looks like. Um, uh, uh, they'll have, we'll have some more uh, initial jobless claims. I will, that would, could be interesting if that jumps above the 250 level. Um, and we're going to have personal income and spending, which will tend to refine uh, some of the, some of the data that we got earlier, uh, that big jump in one year inflation on Michigan. We're getting a final read on that to see if it's as big as it was currently. That was kind of a shocker. And then of course, the next week we do have the fed, we have the ISM reports that will come out before the Fed, but we know that the employment report, which is important for April, won't come out until after the Fed meeting on, on January. So next Friday, we will give a review of what I think the data looks like and what that means uh, for uh, the Federal Reserve. Stocks uh, stocks are looking good. Uh, I mean, um uh, they're really holding in. We often see a lot of morning selling, but then buying comes in the afternoon. We don't see the vulnerability. Uh, VIX is dropping, uh, so we don't see the volatility. We have some interesting things, and we have Tesla, of course, uh, with a interesting on a, almost a price war on the EV front. 
Um, and of course, that's one of the biggest NASDAQ uh, uh, components. And then we also had the interesting on P&G. I thought their earnings, which beat expectation, was all on price increases. Their actual unit sales were not good. And of course, this goes to the story that we've always told that inflation in the long run is fine for stocks. They can raise prices to to, to um, offset uh, costs. This was certainly more than the case in, in P&G uh, that we got on earnings today. So we, we've had, you know, basically ups and downs. They haven't been terrible. Guidance has been cautious, as everyone has been cautious because of the banking situation and because, of course, the cumulative uh, effect uh, of, of tightening. Uh, I still think that cumulative effect of tightening and the banking will slow things down dramatically. Will make it hard for the stock market to break out from you know the highs that it has reached several times before um, uh, until the Fed seemingly gets it and starts uh, not only pausing but saying that they're looking at uh, at rate cuts because I think the real rate is is too high to sustain a normal growth at this point. But uh, clearly the market is. Looking over the trough, it doesn't look overvalued at all. I've, you know, with all the caution and all the pessimism, uh, it finds very little vulnerability in price. Price action is is really, I, I would say, quite favorable. Now we're, you know, uh, uh, um, sell in May and go away has been a st- statement. We're approaching May. We're not approaching a great seasonal time. It used to be a great seasonal time. The summer. The summer rallies used to be uh, really <laughs> quite important, 60s and 70s, but it, it has not been a particularly good time, May to October. I, I don't, you know, it doesn't happen all the time. We'll have to see what happens. Um, but the, uh, you know, uh, April has been the seasonally strongest month of the year, uh, particularly the first half of that year. We're all beyond that. So we'll see what basically uh, uh, happens after that. Yields are staying in a very tight range just waiting for the Fed to act and see whether they, you know, would want to move uh, in one direction uh, or the other. Uh, I'll say two quick things, Professor. I, I'm broadcasting today from Sarasota. We were I attended the Global Interdependence Center Conference, the GIC, which gets a bunch of the central bankers. Governor Waller was speaking yesterday. He did a speech on on innovation, and he talked about the blockchain and AI and 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 trying to put some. Uh, it, when you have Gensler going out hard against crypto, you know it was nice to hear Governor Waller say a few nice things. But it was good to interact with him a bit, and I think you would have enjoyed a lot of the conversation. Um, but I, I, in terms of them, quote unquote, getting your story and getting it, I'm not sure that we're seeing that from them. Um, no, and not from Waller. I mean, clearly his statement, not from Board. Clearly his statement. I, I. Uh, we're getting it from Austin Goolsby, clearly. Yes. Um, uh, several of the others has, uh, have, have put that idea, um, you know, that maybe one and done. They're never going to commit done, but one and may pause uh, to see the effect uh, is basically, uh, you know, I think the market would be happy on that. We, we, we feel that we've done the bulk of the tightening and we may be, afford to pause uh, in the June meeting uh, as far as that's concerned. Of course, data can change. I mean, if we really get some weakness coming in on the initial claims or or uh, the ISM does not confirm the S&P data that we're getting right now, um, uh, you know, then uh, then the story uh, could claim and the doves uh, will come out uh, more strongly. Clearly, uh, a 25 basis point increase uh, data would have to move quite dramatically to to change that at this point. Not impossible, but um, uh, uh, I would say unlikely uh, at this point. So we're going to be talking with Vincent Reinhardt again, who's a chief economist and macro strategist at BNY Mellon. Vincent, do you, any quick comments for the professor before we let him go, or any any interjections you want to make uh, on what on the opening comments here? I think it's awfully hard to turn the Federal Reserve boat. It's headed for another 25 basis points hike in in May and absent something pretty dramatic, they're going to deliver 25 uh, and they'll probably be leaning forward toward more tightening, but they'll be emphasizing data dependence. I think the main message is 
Chair Powell and his colleagues don't care as much about equity markets and investors as you'd you'd, you'd hope. Uh, and they got a macro uh, goal, and it is their aim to tighten financial conditions. And they look at markets right now and say they've had mixed results. They need to see more evidence of slowing. But, it, but it's more than that. I mean, they, uh, you know, Vincent, they did project three quarters of negative GDP growth in their March statement. Forget about the stock market. That's yeah, pretty, the, uh, pretty yeah. extreme. Um, yes. And, and that's the, the employment. And that's yeah. the employee. In other words, they are basically projecting nine months of no payroll growth. That uh, was. Yeah, they've been projecting implicitly I mean, a recession that, that's not for a the, while. Forget about the stock market, yeah. whether they want to stabilize it. That's pretty extreme. Um, yeah. uh, and I don't think necessary, you know, given uh, you know, the data that we have. I mean, as, as I think we reported last week that if we put our current housing data of what really happening to prices, owner-occupied homes and the rental index in there, we've got year-over-year core inflation down to 2%. Um, not in their data, not the BLS, but the BLS is very distorted. Um, uh, so, you know, that, you know, that we've been, we've been saying that for a long time. So the question is, you know, they've gotten part of that statement. They now realize how bad the housing sector is, which is the largest sector in the BLS. Uh, so now they quote X housing of course, X energy and X food, and then you're Xing, <laughs> you're down to 20% of GDP and um, and and all the red with wages lagging prices. Um, actually, the number, it's very interesting. There's been one report about the number of, of, of uh, every quarter on, on, on conference calls, um, the number of uh, CEOs who talk about the labor shortage, it's the lowest level uh, since the pandemic began. Now, I'm not saying there isn't one and in certain areas. We know that it exists, but it is been going down, 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 it went down again in uh, so far of what we're we're hearing uh, in this quarter. So, uh, you know, the question is, is whether, you know, that that uh, how much longer that should be a, a source of concern for the Fed. But you're perfectly right. I mean, it's a it's like a it's like a super tanker. You're not you're not going to turn it around um, on the dime, and that's why uh, you know the early call certainly has to be uh, 25 bips here. Yeah, I would say look, it, it, consistent with the earnings reports, the beige book, uh, the Fed Reserve regional document that was out, uh, also had a little less mes mes uh, uh, a mention of overheating in the labor market. The jobs uh, uh, labor uh, turnover survey uh, is off the peak where there are no longer two vacancies for every unemployed per persons. Everything's cooling. The Fed was anticipating things to cool. In fact, the news is that the staff last time around admitted there'd be a recession. They've yeah, had, well, uh, they've had a forecast of a one percentage point increase in, un in the unemployment rate for a while. Yeah, they, I, have, I, I, they have talked about a contraction in housing. Tell me how many times you get a one percentage point increase in the unemployment rate and a contraction in housing without a recession. They think they need this to bring inflation back to gold. Well, you know, I'm not too sure. I think if they, uh, you know, the, the money supply, as we know, has been dropping now for 12 consecutive months. That concerns me. Um, you know, I always felt that they stepped on the brakes too hard. Um, the, they don't have to squeeze the last dime out of the wages, um, because there is a structural shortage in m many areas where the real wages, I think, have to rise. However, you know, I, I will admit, I mean, at, the, at this point, you know, we're certainly not seeing a falling apart economy by any means. So, um, you know, whether the SVB and the, and the, and the, you know, the problems with the banks and the and the lending going forward is going to give a much uh, stronger showdown. Uh, we'll have to see. We we certainly have not seen it yet. Yeah, let me just say this is the Fed's plan, but it's a really risky enterprise because the business cycle is unpredictable. It's nonlinear. You, you, you tap a little on the brakes. You don't you can't be too too sure how how well you you'll manage the turn 
I think they're looking at the monetary aggregates and say they were supposed to slow. Opportunity cost of holding money has gone way up because banks haven't uh, followed market rates with their deposit rates. And households are working down the big cash hoard they had from all that fiscal transfers in 2020 and 2021. Bank balance sheets are getting smaller. The question is, how orderly will it? Uh, last month was not particularly orderly, uh, but they think the problem's contained. Yeah, I know they do. Uh, by the way, I wouldn't call it tapping on the brakes, but um, <laughs> <laughs> they're slamming you through the windshield. But the uh, but uh, I'll let you guys uh, go on since I have another uh, Zoom. But uh, it's gonna it's gonna be interesting. <laughs> Thanks, professor, so, for kicking us off with some great comments, and we will. Talk to you again next and, week. And, th and, and thank you, Vincent, for joining us, and I'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to continue the conversation with Vincent Reinhardt, who is chief economist, uh, macro strategist at BNY Mellon. Vincent, you have, uh, for our listeners who are meeting you, let's talk a little bit, uh, as we talk about Fed issues, you, you know a little bit. You have some experience at the Fed. So tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your background there, what you did, uh, and, and the context that it helps you provide. Well, ha ha having a discussion about the monetary aggregates with Professor Siegel took me back because I was responsible for publishing them for about seven or eight years. Uh, so I worked for about a quarter century in the Federal Reserve System, mostly at the Board of Governors and mostly in the Division of Monetary Affairs. My last job there was director of the Division of Monetary Affairs and secretary and economist of the Federal Open Market Committee, which I did for almost seven years. And as director, you're responsible for the production of, of, of uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, statistics associated with the Fed's balance sheet and bank balance sheets and interest rates, understanding the, the implementation of policy and the transmissions to the economy. And then secretary of the FOMC, it's the communication statement, minutes, transcript, and then economist providing policy advice. Well, I mean, that's a, a lot of great uh, context for people today. And, you know, this this money supply issue, I mean, th this is one that we've been harping on the Fed for so long. And this is one thing that frustrates the professor uh, so much about statements Powell's made that Loretta then echoes. Um, and he he's basically been making these statements that there's no relationship between money supply and inflation. So like last uh, last night I was pushing Waller and saying from a St. Louis Fed yeah. reserve, what do you think about these statements that there's no relationship between money supply and inflation? And, you know, it was interesting to hear his his, his take. But what do, do you think the Fed has gone too far away from those relationships? Yeah, I think Governor Waller should have been the last op outpost of of anybody who put some weight in the monetary aggregates within the within the system. Uh, you know, look, I think the, the the typical Federal Reserve official response is a lot like uh, the Bank of Canada in the late '80s. We didn't give up on the monetary aggregates. The monetary aggregates gave up on us uh, because basically demand so unpredictable. I think there's information content from them. It's it's important part of the transmission process through a gauge on the size of bank balance sheets. But I would note the European Central Bank, which explicitly had two pillars of analysis, uh, general economy and the aggre monetary aggregates, downgraded the monetary aggregates when they did their strategic review uh, 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 a year and a half ago, I guess that was. Uh, so what's there to be found? I think you look now in, in money, particularly deposits, because the Fed, by the way, has also narrowed what they publish, uh, deposits uh, as a sense for how quickly are bank balance sheets shrinking. Uh, because a shrinkage of bank balance sheets is part of the monetary transmission mechanism. That's what happens when you, when, when you firm policy. Banks don't follow up uh, market rates with deposit rates. It's more costly to bank. And so uh, deposits shrink, and that makes, over time, loans less available. Uh, yeah. And we're seeing that, and we saw it in an ugly, uneven fashion last, last month because of the problems of Silicon Valley Bank. But, you know, to, to be honest, we hadn't seen much of it in, in, in the 12 months before a Federal Reserve tightening. 
Yeah, it, and that's going to be one of those key issues is how much tightening is there going to be? And this is where, you know, the professor was referring to Austin Goolsby saying maybe he's saying he's recording some studies of 25 to 75 basis points of further hikes from this tightening of lending. You've got Torsten Schlock, the Apollo economist, who's like 150. And so there's some range. Um, so I don't actually think that's the right way to frame the issue. From my perspective, the Fed tightened 475 basis points in a little over a year. That should have been associated with a good-sized crimp uh, on credit availability, both in terms of the price and quantity. We didn't get much. Uh, SVB and the problems of other regionals was a reminder of what the Fed's done. And we're getting some tightening in financial conditions from what the Fed's done. the fact that they're getting more tightening in financial conditions means, from what they've done, means they probably have to do less going forward. Uh, but we're still looking in the rearview mirror, mirror and getting a better understanding of what the Fed's wrought, rather than something about what the Fed will be doing. That, that's fair. Um, in terms of the, so from that 475 basis points, um, you know, there's a new phrase going around. Our team started using it. We think early, but uh, see, see a bunch of other people talk about a bank walk versus a bank run. And the bank walk being that, you know, because of that 475 to 5% you could get in treasuries, you know, and the banks are still paying you zero many of the times. And there's still a lot of people not collecting the right deposit levels there. Do you, do you, is, is, are you starting to see? data or as as you see from the 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 BNY side or anywhere like what do you do you see behavior consumers changing behavior banks having to raise their deposits much more than they have historically because of the movement in deposits on your mobile phone quickly like what what do you see is is happening here so uh, a couple things one is the H8 will be published this afternoon so that's always an exciting uh, exciting part of, the, of my work week and so I'll be there looking at the data and and in the aggregate statistics you do, do see a pickup in the runoff in deposits uh, but it's an extension of a trend that was already there associated with exactly what you were talking about, uh, Fed tightening, making bank products less attractive. I think it's, it's a little steeper than just just what happened to the opportunity cost of holding money. And, and that's because what I mentioned earlier, uh, enormous fiscal transfers in 2020 and into 2020. 21, by some estimates, households had something like two and a half trillion dollars of accumulated saving from all those transfers. You see, they went into deposits uh, the, yeah. from uh, and and as those are being worked down, and they are being worked down now, uh, probably by a half trillion by now. Uh, it's coming out of deposits, so banks were going to get smaller. Uh, um, recognize in part it's a bank decision because banks could always follow market rates up a little more right and they don't uh and so uh that is why uh uh when at a time when cash is attractive that cash gets parked in in money funds rather rather than deposits uh i think the key issue when you look across banks is how sticky are deposits you know uh, what is the relationship between the client and and, and the bank? Uh, I think Silicon Valley Bank taught taught you that uh, being the cool kid on the corner uh, isn't uh, associated with having deposits that are sticky. It's a you know it's a social norm to deposit at, at one particular institution. Social norms can change fast. A business need to deposit someplace, that's something different. And and I think banks, based on experience, see deposits as as somewhat sticky and, and they're, are therefore pricing accordingly. Uh, it's not until you see deposit rates changing a lot uh, that you say that you would suggest that there's pressure on bank balance sheets. And you see a little of that in regional regional bank pricing. 
I, I do wonder if this is where innovation is going to come and make it just easier to spend off treasuries. Um, I know we're working on things like that, but I think there is it 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 is a shame that people you know could be earning the five percent, but it's just the inconvenience of moving it from one account to another that you don't get the five percent appropriately. And, and it seems like during the eighties, you know, it was very different. I mean, you, they they moved rates up much more with the very high rates, and today they definitely have got the banks have gotten comfortable on the stickiness of zero, and uh, maybe they they move things too late. I think there's an important story there, and that's, you know, what what are we supposed to learn from SBB? And, you know, it's great to tell morality st- stories of, you know, no chief risk officer and, 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 and uh, uh, balance sheet, sheet mismatches. But one of the other things we should have learned from SBB is that a decade of low for long, where the Fed kept the policy rate at its effective lower bound, where all major central banks kept the policy rate at, at, at its effective lower bound, suppressed the volatility of capital assets, particularly treasuries. And in an environment in which you didn't see much price risk, people may have t- taken inappropriate decisions about duration, including some banks, uh, in, in part encouraged by the official sector that treats treasuries you know, uh, uh, um, uh, favorably, but, you know, after a decade of low for long, uh, we're going to learn something about some, some more balance sheets and we probably won't like what we learned. And Oh, by the way, what happened to treasuries, uh, after four and three quarters points of federal reserve tightening the market price of treasury debt, the whole $23 trillion universe, uh, fell almost 15%. Those losses are allocated somewhere. At the F- they're at the FOMC on the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, a good chunk. Uh, the, the biggest holder is the rest of the world. So we yeah. inflicted a capital loss on foreigners, and the re- and another good chunk is on on the Federal Reserve, which, thanks to the the uh, uh, benefits of unique central bank accounting, uh, won't be recorded. But it's showing up. Because they're reimbursing less, or they're they're remitting less income to the treasury. Fiscal space is contracting. Yeah, it is. That is quite interesting. Um, while we were talking about treasuries and yields, um, you know, I think one of the interesting market dynamics is, given these Fed fund rates and those weekly resetting treasuries, what's happening in the one month treasury is all the more interesting at the moment. If you were to say what's driving that, a lot of people are saying concerns or the debt ceiling when you see you know the the one month treasury three month treasury yields what what's happening in that very short end of the curve any comments about what's happening there yeah you see a bump in yields associated with payments that uh, some people would rather avoid uh, payment dates and and that includes things uh, from august 15 inward because by the tradition conventional estimates the treasury will run out of cash uh if the debt ceiling isn't raised by then and we'll have to pen payments on everything including uh, uh principal and, and coupon that will be a default event so we 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 have clients who don't want to have to deal with a default um even though realistically if the treasury doesn't make payments on 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 a particular security, it's going to be a short event because there'll be such a market backlash that politicians will have to turn around and raise the debt ceiling. Uh, so it's going to be a a, a a a payment delay, not not a repudiation for sure. Uh, but it's a risk event, and we you know can fully understand why some people would want to avoid that risk event in their portfolios. And there's nothing coming out of Washington, D.C. that should make you more confident about uh, the negotiations. There really aren't any on the debt debt ceiling. And I think the Treasury's patterns of receipts should make you worried that that August 15th deadline is probably optimistic. Right. That's more like June. People are moving up the the timeline. And you know why? And Because... 
it's all about tax receipts. And the next two to three weeks uh, is when you'll you'll understand the full amount of, of treasury of tax receipts the IRS are going to get. And tax receipts are are basically the effective tax rate times the base. Well, we know what you know, they're all about what happened in 2022 because it's about filing income taxes. There's lots of reasons to think that the effective tax rate is going to be low. It's the capital losses I talked about. It wasn't just yeah. treasuries where there are losses. There are losses on every capital instrument you can imagine, as your listeners well understand. If there's a lot of tax loss harvesting, it means that effective tax rate is going to be much lower. The tax base is going to be lower. It's going to be uh, it's going to be multiplied in the same tax base, and there's just going to be a lot less receipts. You know, in terms of all the macro shocks of of what's going on, uh, we had the pandemic. We also had the war uh, with Russia, Ukraine, geopolitics. We've got issues and tensions with China. Maybe talk through your view of how the conflicts uh, impacted the economy, how you see that going forward, and what that all means for, for the markets. Yeah, happy to. Actually, I wrote a, a year ahead piece uh, at, at the turn of this year for the Wall Street Journal about inflation and what I viewed as uh, a, a Fed a Fed design failure. And you're right. We had two generational shocks, a pandemic and a land war in Europe. That, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, and they would test the global economy. But they were also a stress test on the Federal Reserve's monetary framework, and the Fed failed. Why? Because the monetary framework, uh, which they rolled out with great fanfare at uh, uh, you know 2019-2020, uh, basically codified the Yellen-Pal uh, experiment about running the labor market hot. You could shoot to get a low unemployment rate, and inflation stayed within uh, close to your goal. Therefore, uh, you should be one-sided in terms of allowing overshoots of inflation. You should be uh, very encompassing how you think about resource slack. And it's okay if you think about your goal with some ambiguous, un un unspecified, backward-looking average of past inflation. It was giving them a lot of discretion to be one-sided. How come? Because over the previous 20 years, goods prices were increasing at less than or around one half percent a year on average. Uh, and that, if you have 30% of your price basket well below your goal, you can have the rest well above your goal, i.e. service prices. So you can run the labor market hot, get the unemployment rate hot, uh, lower by stimulating services and still get to your goal. Um, and and that was the, the, the Ellen Powell experiment, which they viewed as quite successful. Problem was, the pandemic was a sectoral shock. It increased health risk. And health risk read, led people to withdraw from market activity. But unevenly, there's more health risk associated with services than goods. Goods you can get out of inventories. Services particularly have more of a health risk for the provider. You know, you're, yeah. you're in there the whole thing. So what happened? Uh, the fiscal authority maintained income well beyond what the Fed thought. Lots of fiscal transfers. And there was a big sectoral shift then away from what you couldn't buy, services, into goods. Goods demand went well above trend, services well below. Goods inflation went up into double digits. And so something that had been pulling inflation down for 10, 20 years was now pulling it up. And the Fed, having basically overweighted that last 20 years experience, said, ah, it must be transitory. We don't have to worry about it. And they were slow to start tightening. Problem is, goods prices reflected uh, you know, the adjustments of, of a market economy that could be made. Goods prices are flexible. They're set more in auction markets. They can move around. Service prices are now catching up to it. And so the reason Chair Powell talks about the 56% of the consumption basket associated with uh, uh, services less shelter is he's worried that 
those slow-moving prices have a good bit to catch up. And that's why inflation's got momentum. So, yes, generational shocks, but they were a stress test of a framework, and that framework failed. That's why we got inflation. That's why the Fed was slow to recognize we had inflation. And that's why it's a long haul to reduce inflation. So there's a few issues to drill. I want to drill more into this. Um, so one of them is on this 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 services at shelter, uh, and part of the commentary is is how much is wage inflation, and you know, and should and should Powell be trying to compress wages? You know, one of the things Siegel points out often on our show is that workers are trying to catch up to inflation, that they still have negative real wage growth, that wages aren't keeping pace with inflation. It's hard to get, in his view, this wage price spiral if they're not keeping up with, with inflation. But you also talk a little bit about supply shocks. And, and in, in this case, where you have a supply shock for workers, if and Powell said we've had the structural shift in employment, is that something the Fed should be trying to even adjust like with their policy? Yeah, that, so an important part of being a central banker is to accept that there are things you can't do. Uh, a central banker doesn't create more output. They can borrow it from abroad by getting their exchange rate weaker, or they can borrow it from the future by keeping rates lower. In this case, it's the other way around. Uh, You push demand away by having appreciated currency, and you delay everybody's consumption decision into the future by keeping rates high. Uh, But you don't make more output. Uh, I think the, the Fed's problem in 2020 was recognizing that uh, in the aggregate, fiscal authorities were supporting income as much as income as there was available to purchase. But the Fed more than fully accommodated that. Uh, and so that was the the, the source of, of excess demand. Uh, you know, it, you know, Look, I actually wrote a note uh, last month, which would be there on 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 the Dreyfus and Mellon web pages, exactly about the the Pierre Powell's arithmetic. He talks about it like it's accounting, but it's actually behavior relationships. Uh, that first, when the labor market is taut, that pushes up wages. That's that's it. That's uncertain uh, prediction. Because uh, there's lots of other reasons wages go up and down. And then second, that when wages go up, there's a pass-through to uh, subcomponents of service prices. That's also uh, a, a prediction, and there's lots of other reasons uh, you could get adjust- you have adjustments. I think the wage data in particular are really difficult to look at, to understand right now, because there's a lot of compositional shifts. Average hourly earnings is in part lately being held down because the jobs that are coming back are the lower wage service ones. Um, the, the All the headline layoffs are high wage service ones. And so average hourly earnings look a little better contained than they probably are because of those compositional shifts. One place to look is the Atlanta Fed produces slices and dices, the uh, the wage data, and they produce a series on the uh, the median wage. So that would be a wage, just the, 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 the central tendency of the wage distribution, uh, and therefore not uh, influenced by compositional shifts. And that's in the 6% on a 12-month basis. Yeah, that's, that's high. Um... In terms of the, you made a few comments about the fiscal side and the the Fed being surprised by fiscal. Uh, I know you've probably done a lot of work on overall fiscal levels. um, And and one of your charts in your decks talked about the sort of ratcheting of the fiscal contribution. How much fiscal space do you think we have at the moment? You know, as part of the debt ceiling conversation is, is, you know, do you think we're going to run into where our debt to GDP levels are? Are we going to run into more issues here? What What's your view on the fiscal side, and and is it going to continue ratcheting as we have recently? Yeah, so I wrote a, actually a couple academic papers with my wife Carmen and Ken Rogoff 
about the longer term relationship to of debt to GDP and and growth. And one one of those exercises we looked at, at debt to GDP back to the Napoleonic War. And uh, among the things you find is that episodes of high debt tend to be very persistent and and associated with slower growth. So there is a consequence of having high debt and that they're only uh, worked down uh, over time by hard things, um, i.e. Uh, bringing your, your, your deficit in, uh, back into, in, into better balance and also unorthodox measures like financial repression. So it's costly when you get up there. Uh, uh, we have in the United States uh, a big advantage, and that is we're the reserve currency. And so uh, we'll probably have more leeway uh, to accumulate issue debt uh, because a lot of it is held by foreigners. Uh, you know, in, the, uh, in that $23 trillion of marketable debt, at the end of, of of treasury debt at the end of last year, seven and a quarter trillion of it was held by the rest of the world. So the fact that foreigners are willing to buy you know, buy our stuff means it's easier for us to issue it, and we will not uh, come to the point where uh, debt burdens uh, will begin to uh, raise questions about uh, repayment status and and require premiums. Um, lots of emerging markets are already there. Our, some advanced economies are already there. Uh, it'll take wa- a while for the U.S. However, if U.S. Po- politicians are cavalier in their views on repayment, uh, those attitudes could change faster. Uh, so that's why the debt ceiling is important. It's important because um, once uh, questions about repayment uh, 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 enter the minds of investors, then the issuer pays for it. And, and and also the geopolitical side recently of what we did with Russia, and you know, can can yeah. these countries now say, hey, you know, I thought the dollars were good, um, and all of a sudden. Now China starts fearing what happens as their relationship with the U.S. If that deteriorates into some level, will there be just less demand? But if you know China wants to sell the U.S., what are they going to do with all their dollars? You know, it's, yeah. It's, so it's look, start, issue. starting in 1979 with freezing Iranian deposits, uh, the U.S. increasingly are, is projecting its foreign policy through extraterritorial. Uh, 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 restrictions on finance. And the reason that the, the U.S. dollar is ubiquitous in transactions is it's, it's historically easier, easy to use. It's the easiest currency to use. Uh, and there are a lot of assets to hold because, you know, you don't hold dollars, you hold assets denominated in that in dollars. So we have a lot of advantages, but we're eroding those advantages. Uh, we are creating really uh, a big wall uh, uh, across uh, economies between allies and others. And even within the allied sector uh, group, uh, we're willing to use financial regulation and, 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 and rules on the plumbing of finance uh, for other purposes rather than just provide efficient transaction services and that and that should be worrying yeah it'll be it'll be interesting as uh the all these developments uh continue let's take some of we talked a lot of macro issues let's try to translate some of them into market views for for a few moments let you know and as you think given all your views on the fed inflation the continued hiking path what are you suggesting clients, your portfolio managers at, at Dreyfus Mellon, what are you suggesting from a macro strategy perspective here? It's a simple translation of our global macro view uh, into what it says about current valuation and therefore opportunities. In terms of the global macro view, we think the Fed will continue to tighten. Not much more. They are at the tail end. It's going to be data-driven, but it more so than in markets. And you should take Chair Powell's word that they'll keep the funds rate at a plateau in 2023. That's more than it's priced in. 
And the reason they're doing it is inflation is more stubborn than is priced in. And that effort will mean uh, that the U.S. economy will probably go into recession by uh, later this year. Uh, what does it say about valuation? It says that you should be in cash because short rates are high and will stay high, that they are going to be higher for longer than investors appreciate. And as that sinks in, that will be bad for longer-term capital instruments. So short, short duration in treasuries, short duration in other fixed income assets. The economy, uh, uh, the Fed's doing it for a reason, concerns about inflation. So you should find inflation protection wherever you can, i.e. look for uh, uh, tips, something that has some inflation compensation built into it. Uh, the effort to slow the economy to get inflation back to goal uh, will be bad for macro, the macro economy. The unemployment rate will be going up. GDP will be in recession. Um, that imply, uh, the thing to remember there is profits and earnings have a much higher cyclical amplitude than GDP. So it's a bigger swing in earnings. That will be bad uh, for equities because of, of poorer earnings prospects and a higher rate of discount. The, the funds rate will be higher. If equities are doing poorly, then, then that's something about uh, a firm's balance sheets, and that means that uh, corporate risk spreads will be wider. It's global in nature, so there's not going to be a lot of places to hide internationally, but there may be some uh, in, in emerging markets. The, the higher for longer um, and being short duration is, is interesting. When you think of recession, you think, you know, the bond yields drop. Um, now, do you think this, the inverted yield curve today, is, is this something you think is going to be more common? Do you think it's unique to today's environment? What do you think about this inverted yield curve and staying short duration, if there's a recession, um, why wouldn't you know people get some yeah. capital gains in the long end? Yeah, so so I, I agree completely in terms of, of 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 where you should be the duration of your portfolio. That's about timing, right? Right now, market participants do not appreciate that the Fed will be higher for longer. So it is an, a, a a pretty poor strategy to go into long duration assets because people are, will appreciate where the Fed is and there'll be capital losses there. Once that appreciation sinks in and the economy starts uh, 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 suffering, we're going to we're going to come to that moment that Professor Siegel mentioned earlier in the show when the Fed appreciates that it's going to have to start cutting rates. That's when uh, going longer in duration makes sense. So short duration now, later in the year, longer duration. Timing, however, is is is, is never a forte of, of, of economists, yeah. right? Do, do, uh, what about a level, a max level? The tenure got to 425. Um, is that a screaming buy? Is it at over four? It's a screaming yeah, buy? Yeah, I, I think when it's in the four and, four, four and a quarter, or maybe to four and a half, then then it's probably as high as it's going to get in this cycle. And 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 the only way it would get there is if it's sunk in that the Fed is raising is 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 serious in how long it'll keep rates high. Yeah, so there's a lot of adjustments in the Fed futures market that Vincent is suggesting. Um, you, briefly, on you, you mentioned emerging markets. Any quick comments on what those areas might be interesting? Oh, I think the, the you know uh, the, the 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 thing to do is look for uh, the the successors to the Chinese economy. I.e., we know China Chinese growth is slowing just because it's gotten so big and and wages are rising there and it's hard to keep the middle class happy and there's lots of geopolitical reasons. Growth's going to be slowing. The thing about China, it was high growth and predictably high growth. Look to the places where growth is projected to be high, and there's there's a tight variance around those projections. Um, last week, we got the World Economic Outlook for um, uh, uh, data from the IMF. That's always a great 
great warning because it's a half million of ops million observations on 195 economies going out to out, out the world so in the em em sat um uh you you know you kind of get a sense that that the the uh, uh commodities uh will come back that there will be successors to China for global demand. Uh, that's part that that would suggest there's part of of, of the Asian Pacific Rim and 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 LATAM. Um, lots of risks out there, of course. Emerging market and developing economies just are associated with more volatility, and a significant number of countries, the the lesser income ones, are in de- debt distress. So, they're, so there's gonna be shocks. Um, associated in the MDE space, uh, that's an opportunity to find the ones with good fundamentals. Very interesting. And uh, the news is India's population is going to surpass China any moment. So there's uh, one with yeah. potential. The, the bad news, India was always has always been the great next growth prospect. Uh, but Indian politicians haven't figured out a way to deliver on that. Let's hopefully they start to get some things together. Uh, and sort of final closing thoughts as as we wrap up, any last uh, summarizing points you want to make, directions you want to point people to to keep in touch with all your work at, at Dreyfus Mellon? So the, you know, the message is simple. The, the, leave the Fed more than is currently priced in. They've got reasons to raise rates and keep them high, higher. That's something we write about pretty regularly on our Dreyfus and Mellon web pages. We also do... Uh, uh, calls open to the world uh, the day after the FOMC meeting uh, called Behind the Curtain, uh, explaining uh, what just happened the day before. And I just did a a client uh, quarterly update. The link there will be on our webpage on Monday. Well, we've been talking with Vincent Reinhardt, who is the Chief Economist Macro Strategist at Dreyfus Mellon. It's been a a great conversation. Enjoyed uh, getting to hear all your worldviews. We've been working with uh, the BNY Mellon team for a long time uh, at Wisdom Tree as sub-advisors to some of our ETFs. So it's been a pleasure having Vincent on the show. Uh, Thanks to our uh, producer, Matt Datt, Dion Simpkins on the soundboard. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.